<clears throat> if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is this a formula or a summary? Think about that. I am the father of four beautiful daughters, all now in their tw late 20s, early 30s, mid-20s. I better be careful. Some, one of them might get mad at me for saying late 20s. But um, adult young women, um, they're all married. The oldest has two wonderful daughters um, that we're blessed to, to call our grandchildren. And our, our oldest daughter, Rebecca, now, if, if those of you who are parents, when, if you have more than one child, um, you probably remember the firsts of the first child more so than the second or third or fourth, okay? And I don't know if it's still true now that photograph has gone almost entirely digital, but, you know, remember growing up, if, if you're the first child, there's gobs of photos in a, in a drawer somewhere of you, and the second kid, there's a handful, okay? <laughs> and maybe it's the same on all the phones, uh, all, the, all the pictures that are stored there. But I remember very vividly Rebecca's first steps. You know, she's in the living room, and, and of course, we're being, we knew it was coming, we could see it coming, and, you know, Linda's coaxing her on, come on, honey, you can do it, and then there's big cheers, and she smiles, and didn't know what she did, but, you know, we're, we're thrilled. And there's another moment that kind of came some months later that I remember even more, that I cherish even more than that one. Now, at that time, I was a youth pastor, and um, the church provided my home, which was right next to the church. There was my driveway, the church driveway, then the church. So my, my walk to the office was pretty short. <laughs> there was no commute involved. And so I, I would go to my office, and um, at the end of the day, I'd usually come back around the same time, more or less. And it got to the place where Rebecca would, would hear the door when I came in because I was the one that came through the back door most typically. And so that happened one afternoon. I'm, it's 4 o'clock, 4.30. I'm coming in the door. She's playing on the, on the floor in the next room. And she hears the door, and she gets up, and she's excited. And she starts running toward the kitchen. And I came out of the kitchen, and I turn, and I see these big brown eyes and smile with arms stretched out running right at me. And, of course, I picked her up and gave her a big hug. And it was beautiful. I remember that because those... Feet from the first steps, wow, they've, they've moved. She can move quicker, and, and, and she hears me, she remembers me, and she embraced me, she ran to me. Oh, that was beautiful. That's love. You know what I didn't do? I didn't say, okay, honey, now you got to be careful when you run there. You could have fallen down and hurt yourself. I didn't say, well, why didn't you do that weeks ago? I've been waiting for that. Of course we don't do that. We just take joy in the moment. These moments aren't perfect, and yet they're, they're timeless, they're precious, they're eternal in a lot of ways, because love is eternal. And yet, as I shared last week, I had a beautiful experience as a boy of bowing down on the ground while I was playing by myself in my front yard and asking Jesus into my heart. No remorse, no, I didn't even ask for forgiveness, I just said, Jesus, come into my heart. 
very happily and smiled and kept on playing. And then I grew up and I go to church and I learned theology, which is a good thing, by the way. I learned this book, which is a wonderful thing. And yet, I start hearing these invitations to accept Jesus as your Savior. And here's the things you got to do to make sure. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I didn't do that right when I was four. I better have a do-over here. So I would go listen to the pastor and walk forward to the altar, or I'd raise my hand, or whatever it is they were asking me to do, just to be sure. And I'm not, I'm not even saying that's a wrong thing, and yet in me, it created doubt. And in me, and, and part of the time, too, as I mentioned last week, it was a response to fear. It was a response to this fire and brimstone kind of thing that occasionally came out of, of uh, the evangelical upbringing that I was experienced to, exposed to. But, you know, as I mentioned, too, more often than not at my home and my church, there was, there was love there, and that's what mattered most. But is there a right and a wrong way to come to God through Christ? Is, is there a right and a wrong way to, to do this, this Christian thing, to become a believer, to become a follower? There, there's even so many ways that we characterize it, isn't there? Some people go to John 3 and say, you must be born again, that's it, and they call it born again. Are you a believer? But aren't you a born-again believer? Well, um, I think so. Now, to some people, that phraseology in John 3, as Jesus talks to Nicodemus, is, is very personal to them. It's special. Maybe they relate to Nicodemus somehow. But is that the only path or words or ways? Like I said to the kids, do we, do we have to pray in a certain way, a certain body position, use the right words? What is it that God honors in terms of any person accepting what God's given. Let's just put it that way. This gift of love through his son Jesus, available, says he so loved all the world, so unless you're living on another planet right now, I think that includes you. Um, he loved all the world, so it's, it's available to everybody, but how do we get it? Well, I'm going to look at several examples in Scripture, and we'll see if, if anything kind of lines up in terms of a pattern, like here's how you have to do it if you're a real follower, a real believer. Well, let's just take an example. First one. First steps toward Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, there was a, an Ethiopian eunuch. Um, this man and several other examples I'm going to give is unfortunately unnamed in Scripture. And I'm not, you know, angry at the scripture writers. They were motivated to write the way they did, inspired by the Spirit the way they did, but I wish there were names more often. Anyway, this Ethiopian eunuch who was a, an official in the queen of Ethiopia's royal palace. So he was a man of some high position himself. He had a chariot, and there were others driving the chariot. You can see as you, if you were to read that story in detail from Acts chapter 8. But God calls one of the apostles named Philip, takes him, says, go to this man, go, go to this, this Ethiopian man. He's sitting on his chariot reading Isaiah. Now that alone also tells us he was a man of some means because you didn't just have a copy of Isaiah laying around in your library. In fact, you didn't even have a library unless you were rich. Scrolls were not cheap. 
and copies of scrolls were not cheap. So the fact that he had one, and he had probably not all of the book of Isaiah as we see it, but it was one of Isaiah's prophecies, and it was one that we hear quite frequently, especially when you get into the passion of Christ in the spring and, and, and approaching the celebration of his, of his death and his resurrection from Isaiah 53, about Isaiah looking ahead to this suffering servant, this man that would give all of himself for others. So this is what this Ethiopian man is reading, sitting in his chariot. He's puzzled by it, and God sends Philip to him. And in the 34th verse of Acts 8, it says this. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began, and Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. They bo then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. That sounds like a really great story. So is this how it happens? You have to read the Bible, then ask God to help you. He'll send a prophet along, or an apostle in this case, and, and he'll explain it more fully. Then you get into the water and be baptized, and we're good. Okay, the Baptists will like that because there's baptism involved. You know? But the Baptists might not like it because a lot of churches... When you were going to be baptized, there's a class first. And, and, and there's all these other steps you have to go through. Now, in our case, we don't have water right here anyway, you know, so it, it does take a little bit of planning. But the, the idea here is, I believe, let's be baptized, boom, they did it. Now, is this the, the way to do it, the way to come to Christ? So here we have a man captivated by the scriptures, which, which I have been since I could read. Because I had this book, and, and I was thankfully taught it in Sunday school and in vacation Bible school and summer camp and um, youth group and, and eventually Bible college. And, and, and so I learned this book, and I continue to study it, and I'm still captivated by it. So is that it? We have to get captivated by the Scriptures, and then God sends someone that will help us explain it more fully, and then we're baptized. Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe there's other processes to it. I don't know. There's another outsider called by God named Cornelius. He's an outsider because he is not a Jew. He is a Gentile, very Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, you read that this man is a Roman centurion, a leader, a commander among the centurions, among the, the, the army. And yet, it also says he fears God. He prays to God daily. He gives to the poor. And God sees this. And God sends an angel to him and says, I have seen your, I've heard your prayers. I've seen your gifts to the poor. And I'm going to send you someone named Peter. There's a lot more detail in the story, so I'm going to kind of fast forward. Peter gets sent to him. Now, from Peter's side of this, Peter had to learn a very important lesson that is one of the themes of the entire New Testament, that this gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ and, and the opportunity to, to come to God through him isn't just for the Jews. But the Jewish people, Peter included, the apostles, all of them included, were very hesitant and sometimes almost refusing to take it beyond their own people. And so Peter had to be convinced 
hey, no, I, I, I need to take this to everybody. So he reluctantly goes after this dream and then willingly sees, wait a minute, this is for everybody. And he sees that. And he, he shares with Cornelius and his whole household. And there was a whole crowd there gathered of other people that Cornelius had influenced in a positive way in the ways of God, even though he didn't know Jesus yet or anything about Jesus. 44th verse of Acts 10 says this, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Okay, maybe there's the formula. You, you, you do the right thing before God. He's going to see it. He'll send you a prophet, an apostle to you. He'll explain it more fully. And then the Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to speak in tongues and praise God. That's it. That's the formula. The charismatic's like that one. I'm not saying it's wrong. But it's not the only way, is it? This man Cornelius, doing the right thing, responding with to as much as he knew about God. Limited as it was, God honored it and saw it and heard the prayers. And then when Peter came, it was all fulfilled in him, in Christ, and the Spirit came on him. Well, is that the way? It doesn't quite line up with the Ethiopian, but well, let's look at another one. A sinner with reckless abandon, this time a woman, and she... she Drops to Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. There's a banquet going on at the home of a Pharisee who invited Jesus to be a part of the banquet. Jesus, to his credit, accepted that invitation to go to this banquet at a Pharisee's home. And as I explained, we looked at the story not long ago. There, there was a, an expectation in the culture that when you had a banquet, the leftover food at the end would be given to the poor. So the poor would gather nearby. And sometimes we're actually welcomed into the room to stand at the periphery to, to watch what's going on quietly and to listen respectfully. And then when the banquet was over, here you go. You can take some home, food home for your family. That's a kind thing to do. It would have been kinder if they fed them all together. But, you know, we'll save that for another day. So one of those people, presumably, who came in, who the banquet um, host probably thought was there for that reason, to get food, suddenly burst in, runs to Jesus' feet. She's got something in, in her hands. She breaks it open, pours on his feet. The room smells really strong with this, the scent of perfume and oil and and. and, and She's washing his feet with it and crying and she's rubbing it with her hair and she's weeping and she's just, it's, it's an expression of love and yet the Pharisee saw this as, as just this awful violation because he knew who she was. She's that woman from town. She's got a reputation. What's that sinner doing here? And if Jesus really was a prophet, he'd know that this was the, the local sinful woman. What's he doing letting her do that to him? And Jesus calls him out on that with a, a little parable about who's more grateful, the one who's been given, forgiven a lot or forgiven a little bit. And then when you go to Luke chapter 7, down at the 47th verse, it says this, Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now, the theology student might pause there and say, wait a minute, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross and died yet. Forgiven? How can she be forgiven? And not just forgiven in the moment, like 
her many sins forgiven. What's that about? She didn't even ask to be forgiven. She came and wept at his feet, and he forgives her? What is up with that? Well, maybe that's another way to come to Jesus, to, to come with reckless abandon, not caring what anyone else thinks. I'm going to show my love to God. I'm going to bow at my Savior's feet. I'm going to wash him. This is the, the only thing I can think of. And it may, but, may not be right. It may not be perfect. It may not even be pure in the eyes of God. And yet, hopefully, he'll see the love in it. And God did. And Christ did. And he honored that. So maybe that's the way to come to God. Well, it's at least another one. I mean, Jesus culminated forgiveness at the cross. He needed to go to the cross to, to fulfill forgiveness for all of mankind through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection. And now everyone has opportunity. But it wasn't like God wasn't in the business of forgiving until after resurrection day. He always was. It just was incomplete until then. But this woman still access that same forgiveness, even though she didn't ask for it. The next one, there's an enemy. An enemy named Saul, who would eventually be called Paul. In Acts chapter 9, we read his story of his conversion. And by the way, that's an interesting word too, when you think about um, a, a convert. That, that, that means you were living one way, and now you're living another way. And that may be true of many, many believers, and that's a great story to tell And if that's you, if you had a big conversion. But as I shared last week, I never really felt I had to convert to anything because this was with me all along. Christ was with me all along. Now, did I sin? Absolutely. Did I do dumb things and need to you know, go to the Lord and say, oh, God, forgive me for that. That's helped me to, to, to grow and to get past that and continue to do that. All that is part of my walk with him, but I never, as I said last week, I never felt lost. I never felt I had anything to convert to. Okay? And that might be your story, too. And different people have different, um, different ways of, of approaching God and here we have, you know, Paul, who hated Christians. I mean, literally hated them. And he thought it was God's work to hate them. Because they were a bunch of heretics running around the world, telling people that Jesus from Nazareth died and rose again. And Paul believed, yeah, he died, and I'm glad he did, but this rise again part is a fabrication, and I'm going to put a stop to this. He's a false prophet. These are false teachings. And he arrested people and threw them in jail and had people put to death even. And now, without being asked ahead of time, with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Paul was seeking Christ other than to destroy the work of Christ, God stops him in his tracks. God brings a blinding light from heaven as he's on his way to Damascus to do more of the same arresting Christians and you know, knocks him off his horse doesn't say horse in the text, but it's eh, more dramatic. Right? Knocks him off his horse, and he has this reversal experience. He was completely against the ways of Christ. Now he's going to be all for it. And it says in Acts 9, verse 5, this was Paul's response when Jesus identified himself with a voice from heaven to, to Saul, excuse me. And Saul says this, who are you, Lord? 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And he's blind for three days. A man named Ananias is called to come to him and pray with him and scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized and then in time he becomes a great, the greatest missionary maybe ever, certainly of the, of the early church, to spread the gospel specifically to the Gentile world, even though he was a Jew himself. Is that the way to do it? It's got to be dramatic. You have to have this big turnaround thing. I was like, this way, no, that way, big conversion. If you didn't have that, it can't be real. Well, that's not true either, but this is someone's story. Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's people you know. How about an outcast who's carried by others? In Matthew chapter 9, we have this paralyzed man, probably paralyzed his whole life, at least all of his adult life, as long as anybody can remember, here's the paralyzed guy, another unnamed man, that probably was dragged out to a, a, a strategic corner to lay there and beg every day and get a little bit of coinage so he could at least provide some income to care for his needs and his family. And um, so his family, friends presumably, put him on a mat, a stretcher of some kind, carried him to Jesus. And, and if you read the story, they went to amazing, um, amazing lengths to have him put to Jesus because Jesus was in a house and there's a crowd there no one could get in. It's like standing room only in this house. And Jesus is in the middle, you know, teaching. And so they figured out the only way to get this man there is to, is to bust through the ceiling <laughs> and drop him down by ropes. Wow. Matthew 9.2. Some men brought... Some men brought him, excuse me, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now there's so much in that one sentence. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Well, first of all, Jesus isn't even acknowledging faith from the paralyzed man, unless he's included in their, their faith. But he's amazed at what these friends are doing. At, at, at the length they went to get him down to his feet, this paralyzed man, and then Jesus, they knew he was healing people, they heard the story, so that's what they were hoping and praying would happen. But what does Jesus do first? Your sins are forgiven. What? What's that got to do with it? The guy can't walk. <laughs> but that's what he needed most. And he would heal him. But here's more. Jesus is responding to their faith. And he forgives them. Wow. And, and the man never said a word. Didn't pray, didn't beg, didn't have mercy on me, Lord. Nothing, at least not we have in the text. So, but Jesus forgives him. Then he does heal him. He looks down and says, didn't, didn't even pull him up. He told him, he said, get up, take your mat and go home. Three important instructions. You know, he had to believe that he actually was healed. So move his arms and legs so he could stand up. 
Um, he had to take that mat away because he didn't need it anymore. And he had to go home and show his family that he was healed. And start with home when you've changed. So many great aspects to all these stories in Scripture. But, but for today, it's the faith of others that somehow brought this man to a place of forgiveness and healing. It's another way to approach Jesus. There's a couple more yet. Um, a sinner condemned at Jesus' feet. So here's another thing at Jesus' feet, another story at Jesus' feet. There's a woman that was caught in adultery. Now, if you read the text from John chapter 8, you probably could see, I think it, it, it's fair to conjecture from the text, that those that brought this woman to Jesus probably staged the whole thing. She was probably a prostitute that um, they knew where to find her. Maybe they even sent somebody in, said, hey, we're going to do this, you know, get that guy Jesus, try and trap him in his words. You know, you help us out. Maybe, maybe even one of them was the guy with her. Who knows? But when she gets to Jesus, when they drag her there, she is guilty. Okay? Never mind the other motivations for the moment. She's guilty. They were trying to trap Jesus in his words. They thought they had him. Jesus, this woman's caught in adultery according to our law. She must be stoned to death. What will you do? No matter which choice Jesus makes, he's in trouble. If he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her to death, then he's no longer a friend of the sinners. Then he's no longer this nice guy. Oh, you hear what he, yeah, he let her go. Oh, boy, this Jesus. Yeah, I, I, he's just like the rest of them. We don't like him. But if he says, oh, no, no, don't do that, let her go, then, well, you're disobeying the law of Moses and you're supposed to be a prophet, a teacher of God, a rabbi. What do you mean, let her go? You can't do that. You're disobeying the law. They had him. Either way, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus what he was drawing in the dirt. He'll tell me. He's just sitting there scribbling something. Doesn't tell us. But what he said. All right, fellas. The sinless one among you, you go ahead and whip the first rock at her real hard. And I love the text. And the oldest men in the group, one by one, start dropping the rocks. The wisdom of age. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. And the angriest, youngest, strongest men who are just, just waiting and itching to start throwing stones at this woman, they were last. And they looked around, eh, disgusted and walked away, and there's no one left. Tenth verse of John 8. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Maybe that's more similar to your story. I don't know. Did you, did you come to Jesus just, just completely broken? Did you come to him cowering at his feet, waiting for condemnation to strike? waiting for punishment to come, because there's a lot of people who see God that way. There's a lot of people who think Jesus is like that. Like he's just waiting around to zap you when you, when you mess up, waiting around to punish you because that's what you deserve. And, and as we tell ourselves these stories, as we tell ourselves a story about us in negative kind of ways, then we believe that, you know what, that's what I deserve. That's all I'm going to get. Here I am at Jesus' feet. Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll give me some mercy, but you know what? I don't think it's going to happen. I guess I can ask anyway. 
And if that's all you've received from people your whole life, or at least if is that is your perception, then you, you cast that on to God, and that was this woman's case, and there she is. Where are your accusers? And then Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Just like Paul says in Romans, there is no condemnation in Christ. That's not why he came, John chapter 3, to condemn, but to save So we have six examples in Scripture of different ways that people came to God, came to Christ. The Ethiopian came captivated by Scriptures. Cornelius came just as a servant of God in his own simple and humble way. The woman who anointed his feet came not caring what anyone else thought, I'm going to get to Jesus and I'm going to worship and honor him. The only way I can think of right now, Saul came only because God knocked him off his horse, changed him, gave him a moment to wake up and realize he was all wrong and he had to turn around 100% dramatically. The paralyzed man was brought by others to receive forgiveness. And he himself did. And this woman condemned at Jesus' feet. I could find six more of these. I could find others throughout the Bible. The different ways that that people came to God and God accepted that faith. And I say this today to ask you, what was your beginning point? Where did did the the journey of faith with Christ begin for you? Was it as a child? Was it sometime later? Don't discount that moment. It wasn't perfect. It may not line up with certain theological statements. It may not look like and sound like the sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is fine. It's good. It's helpful. But it's not the only way to do it. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and even that, Paul is, is sort of capsulizing something he's been writing on for chapter after chapter. And he's saying, you know, th- th- this brings it down. And, and even the belief in the heart is what matters. And if you read on through, through, through uh, Romans 10, he, he talks about other ways. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, you know, the, the, the faith in the heart, the belief in the heart is what matters. Some way to express that, to know that God knows your heart. God knows when you're ready to say, I am not God myself. I am not going to live like I am God and don't need God or any God. And I'm going to let go of the control And now you help me from here. And you may have to come back to that place a lot. In fact, I know you will because how you began matters, but where you were headed matters even more. So we have these starting places in our lives and and maybe you connect with one of these examples I gave in Scripture today and maybe it was completely different and that's okay. Why? Because it's yours. And and the last, I didn't put this on the screen, but let me close with this from Galatians. Paul writes this. The 
only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. That's it. Did you ever do that? Let's pray. Father, help us to come to you, to continue to come to you, to continue to walk with you. And we didn't start walking as a baby so we could always walk like a baby. We started because it would be a lifelong journey of steps, of running, of movement, of places and people that we are able to walk toward. And sometimes those steps took us to the wrong places and many times to the right. But you were there all along, knowing our hearts. Thank you for the salvation given to us for all who believe, for all who call out, for all who in their heart know that they need you. In your name I pray, amen.